I'm Christopher Harvey, a proud graduate of Texas Southern University, uh, more specifically uh, the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs where I received my uh, bachelor's in political science uh, and now I work here uh, on Capitol Hill for a congressman that represents the southwestern portion of Connecticut, uh, a proud native of uh, Missouri City, Texas as well. So uh, here on his staff, I serve as a congressional staff assistant. Uh, so in that role, uh, it's kind of, if you want to break it down to a more legislative and administrative role, administrative side. So I like to say that, you know, when you think of a staff assistant, you have a chief of staff, but the staff assistant, I would say, is the chief of stuff. Problem solving, anything that, you know, help the office with any type of issues that come up. And more on the legislative side, uh, doing a lot of legislative research and analysis in different uh, public policy areas, uh, some of the areas that I'm really interested in and work in is appropriations, uh, budget, uh, transportation, uh, transportation infrastructure, uh, immigration, and more recently because of what happened uh, with Hurricane Harvey in Houston, I really uh, have an interest in working in disaster assistance and recovery. For a lot of times for people who work in any type of arena or area of politics, having that uh, firm uh, foundation is vital and I think that with me as a political science major at Texas Southern was really my true introduction into politics and I was able to establish that foundation and understanding the political system, understanding the three branches of government and understanding how they interact with each other and I think having that base knowledge is extremely important and I credit that to my professors uh, at, T uh, at TSU and the Barbara Jordan and Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs kind of really pushing us making us go to the next level and understanding you know how all those systems interact with each other and I definitely believe that that has helped me uh, where I'm currently at now and in addition to the professors a lot of the extracurricular activities uh, I was a part of the uh, famous world-renowned Texas Southern Uni uh, University debate team uh, former LD debater uh, as well as a part of uh, Student Government Association um, and all that uh, together had allowed me to really kind of get a great introduction in local, state, and federal politics um, at the same time. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention me being a part of the Delta Theta chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, which really helped me get into politics as well. I'm currently uh, in school to receive my master's in legislative affairs at the George Washington University. Uh, so for me, definitely graduation is number one. And then I would obviously like to move to a more senior a legislative role here uh, on Capitol Hill. I would love to one day work in the White House Office of uh, Legislative Affairs. Uh, but you know, first things first, you know, we need to get the House and Senate back. And so that's the most important thing right now. Uh, but for me, you know, I've always wanted to live and work in DC. And so now I'm able to do that. And I just really want to make the most of that opportunity while I'm out here. So wherever that takes me is, you know, where I'm willing to go. You know, I, when, I, when I sit back and reflect on all the wonderful places and opportunities I had the chance to you know, work in, I definitely would like to thank uh, not only my professors at Texas Southern, uh, the professors in the Barbara Jordan uh, Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs for really uh, pushing us and ensuring that students there take it to the next level. I definitely want to thank uh, Dr. Adams uh, for all the work he's done there. 
with the uh, MPA program as well as the political science department and chairing uh, the political science department. And I also want to thank all my uh, fellow uh, colleagues uh, and students that you know I was uh, an undergrad with. I really think that us working with each other and having those conversations, those late night conversations about politics and things really kind of helped us kind of hone uh, the skills uh, that you know we're able to possess now. And I'm just truly thankful I'm really thankful for my time at Texas Southern. You know, we are now the second largest HBC in the nation. And, uh, you know, and I really think that we're going to really take it to that next level and uh, obviously get number one. Um, but I would not trade my HBCU experience for absolutely nothing. And I'm just truly thankful for that. Welcome to the EMPA podcast. I'm Dr. Michael O. Adams the director of the Executive Master of Public Administration program here at Texas Southern University. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Well, listen, I, you know what? I feel like, I, I, what am I going to say? You all heard about Heman Sweat this morning. You heard people give an introduction to the, the dean gave a nice introduction talking about the whole purpose of the occasion. Uh, uh, President uh, Lawrence Bose told us a lot about it. And I, I'm thinking to myself, what's my speech going to be about? What am I going to talk about for the Heman Sweat Award Luncheon? Um, but I think that there's always something new that we can learn. Uh, as the congressman said, I spent most of my week in D.C. at the Senate confirmation hearings. I'm actually from Silver Spring, Maryland. I uh, grew up there, and uh, is somebody else from Silver Spring? Yeah. Um, lived there all my life. Uh, and then I, um, I uh, was going up there sort of regularly for different meetings, uh, board meetings, and I took my young son up there with me, and I wanted him to to see all the monuments. So I'm walking him around Washington, D.C. We're looking at the different monuments. You know, go to the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, and it's cold and he's dragging. He's young. He's maybe seven or eight years old then. And finally, he just stops in the middle of the sidewalk and he says, Mom, didn't all these people own slaves? And I was like, oh, yeah, I think so. He said, I don't want to see another one of these monuments. <laughs> and I said, OK. And I said, well, what do you want to see? He said, I just want to see where they make my money. And all of the years that I had lived in Washington, D.C., grew up there, had lived there you know, my whole growing up life until I went off to Hampton and then found, found my, my true home here in Houston, uh, I had never been to the Department of the Treasury to see where the money was made. He said, I want to see what a million dollars looks like on a pallet. And I said, OK, let's go. And so what was so interesting to me about that is that even though that was my city, I thought that I knew everything about it, there's always something new that you can learn, a different perspective that you can have on the same old thing. And so I'm hoping that maybe, maybe today, I can talk about a few things involving Heman Sweat that maybe you haven't heard or give you a different perspective on Heman Sweat. Because the significance of Heman Sweat this week, right now, is that I think we can draw a direct line from Heman Sweat all the way to Katanji Brown Jackson. And I say a direct line, but I'm, I'm, I'm misspeaking because I don't think that it is a direct line. I think that there were stepping stones. And you know how stepping stones go. They're not in a straight line. 
you move a little to the right, then you move a little to the left. And sometimes you have to jump extra far for the next stepping stone. You don't, it's just not right there in front of you. And I think that that is the symbolism of the journey from Sweat versus Painter, from Peeman Sweat's life, to where we are this very week with the first African-American woman being sitting before the Senate of the United States, the Senate Judiciary Committee, to, to be confirmed, because she will be confirmed, as a uh, United States Supreme Court judge. So in order to start this story, I'm going to take you back a little bit further. I'm going to take you back a little bit before him and Sweat had the fortitude and the, and the valor and the dignity to try to get an education here at the University of Texas. I'm going to take you back a few years before the passage of the 13th Amendment, all the way to 1849, where a case was filed which challenged the right of a Negro girl to be admitted to a white public school in Boston. And the case was Roberts versus the city of Boston. And it was argued by Charles Sumner, who was a white abolitionist, because that was an anti-racist person. Um, and he argued that with uh, lawyer Benjamin Roberts, who was a black lawyer, and they argued rather eloquently at the time that the mere fact of separation served to perpetuate racial prejudice and violated the right of Negro children to equal protection uh, under the law. And that the separate treatment of, but that separate treatment of Negro children was upheld by the decision in this case. And the pre precedent that was established by this ruling dominated the course of judicial decisions for the next 100 years. After that, that after that ruling, um, the, the, this same concept took root uh, a short time later in the case that we all know, Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, decided by the Supreme Court in 1896. And this case represented the first application of the 13th and 14th Amendments to the Negro. It involved a constitutional challenge, uh, as most of you know, to the right of a Negro to sit on a train coach reserved for whites. And Plessy argued that the guarantees of the 14th Amendment prevented the imposition of any discriminatory treatment. But the Supreme Court held in that case that the object of the 14th Amendment was undoubtedly to enforce the absolute equality of the two races before the law, but in the nature of things, it could not have been intended to abolish distinctions based upon color or to enforce social as distinguished from political equality or a commingling of the two races upon terms unsatisfactory to either. Now, in deciding Plessy, the court settled the question of school segregation, sanctioning the separation of the races in public transportation in the same way uh, that they had in education. And that decision that the separate but equal brand of segregation uh, made that, it meant that it survived constitutional scrutiny and was the law of the land for the next 50 years, this case legitimized the worst forms of discrimination. And although Justices Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter said in 1992 that Plessy was wrong the day that it was decided, it became the law of the land and it provided a foundation for the separate but unequal allocation of resources in education and, and perpetuated the concept of denying education uh, because in reality it set in motion, as we all know, a separate but unequal uh, system uh, and re which resulted in the racial oppression of black Americans for more than half a century. Um, now, then there were some school cases that still tried to push forward, even against the backdrop of Plessy. 
Uh, Charles Hamilton Houston of the NAACP uh, challenged Maryland's policy of excluding blacks from the University of Maryland Law School in 1936 in the case of Murray versus Pearson. Then a challenge was raised to a Missouri Supreme Court decision, also in 1936, that held that because law schools in the states of Illinois, Iowa, and Kansas, and Nebraska accepted Negroes, that a Negro citizen of Missouri was not being denied his constitutional right to equal protection under the law when he was excluded from the only state-supported law school in Missouri. It is against that backdrop that Heman Sweat decided that he was going to try to move forward with that kind of opposition, with that kind of burden, with that kind of, of, of being turned back for any opportunity that other people had tried, he still decided that he was gonna to try to move forward and figure out whether or not he could be educated here in the state of Texas. The victory over Plessy in the area of higher education didn't occur until 1950 as a result of two significant cases in the area of higher education. The first one was in Oklahoma. A 68-year-old man named uh, McLaurin challenged uh, the state because he was seeking a doctorate in education and he protested the separate conditions under which he was forced to study in a separate little room all by himself without being able to interact with other students. And then, as we all know, the other one right here in Texas, Plessy, I mean, uh, Heman Sweat, Sweat versus Painter, in which Heman Sweat protested the tact that was taken by the Texas legislature, which provided that no Negro could attend the University of Texas Law School and no white could be admitted to Texas Southern University Law School. We've heard a lot about him and Sweat. I thought maybe I'd throw in a couple of like anecdotal things that maybe you don't know. One of his lawyer's grandson is sitting at the table as my guest here today. <laughs> Carter Wesley. Uh, who, um, those of you from Houston probably know, his, his family owned a newspaper here uh, in Houston. And when Heman Sweat was unable to work as a result of, of going through this, his grandfather is the one who supported and actually financed the lawsuit that was going, uh, that, that, that was being uh, uh, litigated. Now, Heman Sweat did go off to UT, and they did give him a little space to the side. There are some old pictures where you can see he's sitting in a little chair off to the side. Everybody else is in class together, and he's off you know, in the hinterland, sitting off by himself. But as a result of the litigation of that case, of course, the University of Texas uh, dean started the Texas State University for Negroes. And they said, no, you can't be up here with us. Go on back to Houston. And I, I was sworn in by Judge Henry Doyle, I think, uh, uh, Lawrence Bose mentioned Henry Doyle, Judge Doyle, uh, this afternoon. Uh, and Judge Doyle, I just adored him. And he told me a story of how when he left Austin and they, they put all the stuff in a trailer and, and were driving it from Austin back to Houston, that he got in his car and followed the little trailer back from Austin back to Houston to come study down here at school at Texas Southern University. Um, and so we all know the history there. We know what happened, that he came down here, and it was as a result of his courageous stand uh, in 1947 uh, that Texas Southern University uh, was ultimately started. Um, and Thurgood Marshall was seminal in that case uh, in terms of making sure that the issues that needed to be heard 
uh, were heard. And I think that the presence of Thurgood Marshall um, and his involvement in that case is one of our first uh, stepping stones uh, because when he was litigating that case, one of his law clerks was none other than Constance Baker Motley. She had started working for Thurgood Marshall in 1945 when she was still in law school. She was just a clerk working for him, but she was involved in an important part of that whole mission in terms of litigating that case. Um, and just like we heard earlier today, there would not have been a Brown versus Board of Education if there were not a uh, Sweat versus Painter because Brown versus Board of Education was then decided in 1954, just a few years later. So now we're going to start talking about these stepping stones. Y'all want to hear about these stepping stones? You're going to have to ask me. What's the next stepping stone? Okay, let me tell you. <laughs> so 1954, we had Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, Thurgood Marshall worked on that. And Constance Baker Motley was also a part of that team. Sometimes we don't give the women enough credit. Isn't that true? That is true. And she was as integral a part of that whole process as Thurgood Marshall was. But the women didn't always get the notoriety and the notice that they were supposed to get. And so we all know what happened with Brown versus Board of Education, even though the Supreme Court said that the separate but equal brand of of uh, was not was going to go away. It didn't actually really go away. After that, we had the Southern Manifesto, where all the Southern states decided that they were going to push back against the implementation of Brown versus Board of Education. So these lawyers did not get to stop fighting. They had to keep fighting, even after Brown versus Board of Education was passed, Congressman. And you know that, that, that there were many congressmen who got together and decided that they were going to push back against the implementation of Brown. It was some years before they were actually able to get Brown implemented. And in those days, in the late 1950s, Thurgood Marshall, Constance Baker Motley, and many other dedicated civil rights lawyers came to the states, to the South, particularly here to the Fifth Circuit. In those days, the Fifth Circuit was Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, and Georgia, all the Southern states. And they litigated hundreds and hundreds of school desegregation cases during those days. What was interesting and significant about that is that Thurgood Marshall came down here to litigate a lot of those cases. And you all know, if you ever saw any pictures of Thurgood Marshall from back in the day, he was always clean as the Board of Health. looking GQ. He shows up at the Fifth Circuit to argue a case, and he's looking very disheveled. And the judges there in the Fifth Circuit want to know why did he look so disheveled? Why didn't he look like his usual self? And one judge, Judge Reeves, went up to him and he said, and I know you know about this, uh, uh, Walter, he said, why are you looking so disheveled? You always look so good. He said, well, last night when it was time to go to bed, I was in a sundown town. And it was a sign that said, nigga, don't let the sun set on your ass in this town. And he said, but you're Thurgood Marshall. He said, I'm a black man driving through the South. And he said, what did you do? He said, I kept driving. And so that personal interaction between Judge Reeves and Thurgood Marshall resulted in Judge Reeves, who was actually a conservative Democrat, switching the way that he voted on school desegregation cases and going with three other judges on the Fifth Circuit, judges John Minor Wisdom, Henry Tuttle, and John Brown. And as a result, the four of them made a four-judge voting block that made it possible for at least two of the four of them to be on every case involving school desegregation. Judge Reeves did that at great personal expense to himself. 
His, his son's grave was desecrated. His house was vandalized. And, uh, but he was also had decided, because of his personal relationship with Thurgood Marshall, he decided he would become an anti-racist. And so he decided to join with the four. And the reason that they called them the four was four of them, but it was also a slight. It was a reference to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so they thought that this was the apocalypse for white folks, that they were getting ready to make it so that all the white folks were going to have to go to school with the black folks, and that's just exactly what happened. Those cases were litigated throughout the end of the 1950s. And honestly, all the way up until the 1970s, those were, there were still school desegregation cases that were being decided. As a result of the good work that Thurgood Marshall did, he got noticed. And he, and he got noticed by um, Lyndon Johnson, who decided to appoint him to the first Court of Appeals in 1961. Now, before he left to go to the Court of Appeals in 1961, he got a case, got a letter from a guy named James Meredith. And James Meredith sent him, them a letter that said, I'm going to go to the University of Mississippi. Judge, judge, were they letting any black folks in to uh, the University of Mississippi in 1961? Not at all, right? Not at all. Connie ba Connie, Constance Baker Motley tells the story of how Thurgood Marshall came into her office, threw the letter on her desk, and said, this guy's crazy. This is going to be your client. And gave, the, gave that case to Connie Motley to represent James Meredith in his fight to get into the University of Mississippi. And she did, she took the case. And she tried this case right here in the Fifth Circuit. And because it was in the Fifth Circuit, I was so intrigued about that case, I decided to look up the whole record and read it. Fascinating, fascinating. She tried to take the deposition of the registrar. They wouldn't let her. Oh, but they let her client's deposition be taken. Then she tried to get an injunction during the summer so he'd get into school, the summer of 1961. The judge pushed the injunction hearing off so that it was beyond the start date of the summer session, so he would not have an opportunity. Then when she finally got the injunction hearing, he wouldn't let her hardly ask any questions. He let the other guy keep interrupting her. And then at the end, she lost anyway after all that work. She filed the case in May of 1961. And by the end of 1961, December of 1961, he basically completely turned her down. You remember that, Ricky. And so then, in the fall, in the spring of 1962, it got reversed by the Fifth Circuit. Because why? Because the four were there. And the four said, ah, no, this is all kind of wrong. And so they reversed it and sent it back for trial. Went back to trial, but she still lost at the trial. Went back to the Fifth Circuit, and they were like, we just gonna do this ourselves. And so they said James Meredith could go to the University of Mississippi, went up. He comes back, he tries to go. They won't let him in. The governor of Mississippi did what, Judge? What did the governor of Mississippi do? Stood, stood in the doorway and blocked him so that he could not come in to register. And that what happened? Judge? Stood in the doorway, blocked him, wouldn't let him register. And they kept, Connie Motley said, why am I sending him over there over and over and over again when y'all not gonna let him in anyway? They had to send the National Guard. How many troops was the judge? 15,000 troops? Some ridiculous least, number? 15,000 National Guard troops had to be sent down there. Two people died. Uh, I think it was one law enforcement person and one civilian, oh no, one reporter, one reporter and one other uh, civilian person died because James Meredith was trying to get into school at the University of Mississippi. But he got in and he graduated. 
And he went on to law school at Columbia University and became a civil rights leader in Mississippi. Did, is he still alive, Judge? He is. Still alive, okay. Wasn't sure. So that all happened. In the meantime, Thurgood Marshall is already making his mark. He's on the Court of Appeals in New York. And, um, but as a result, Constance Baker Motley also made a name for herself. And so in 1966, she became the first African-American woman appointed to the federal bench, and that was in New York. And she served there admirably. But she should have had the opportunity to be elevated to the Court of Appeals. She, she was eligible. They were talking about elevating her to the Court of Appeals. But you know why they didn't, didn't get to promote her to the Court of Appeals, why she didn't get the opportunity? It's because they decided that because she had uh, represented and won a case, Dean, advocating for capital defendants to be able to have counsel at the time of arraignment, that that meant she was biased because she represented the criminal element. Does that sound familiar? Do we hear that same story this week? I think we heard that same story this week. That was 56 years ago. We're still having the same story about, ooh, you represent the criminal element. You're biased. That's why she never got the opportunity to go to the Court of Appeals. But, but, some, one black woman did get the opportunity to go to the Court of Appeals. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that I really didn't know that much about her until recently. Do y'all know the name Julia Cooper Mack? Who's heard her name before? A few of you? Not that many. I didn't know that much about her until recently. Julia Cooper Mack was the first black woman to go to the Court of Appeals, and that was in 1975. And she went to the DC Court of Appeals. Let me tell you the significance of that. Of the current Supreme Court judges, eight of them came from the Court of Appeals. It's the stepping stone. Four of them came from the DC Court of Appeals. Congressman, am I right? Isn't that how it goes? The DC Court of Appeal is seen as the stepping stone court to the Supreme Court. Judge Mack, Cooper Mack, went to the DC Court of Appeals in 1975. And she stayed there on the Court of Appeals um, until 2001 and decided many important cases, including one that's important to me. She decided that single people could adopt. That hadn't been the law before that. It's important to me because I'm a single person who adopted. A lot of you know I adopted my son as a single mom. I wouldn't have been able to do so but for the courage of that woman. And one of her very first law clerks is a woman by the name of Allison Duncan. Allison Duncan became the first African-American circuit court judge in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. She's a Hampton graduate. Oh, and Judge Mack was also a Hampton graduate and went to Howard Law School. So, I mean, we're keeping it in the family, right? And so, um, currently, currently, there are four black women on the Court of Appeals. And eight of the current justices, I told you, came from the Court of Appeals. Four came from the DC Court of Appeals. Uh, and so, Ketanji Brown Jackson being elevated to the DC Court of Appeals in 2021 was the next stepping stone. That was the stepping stone that she needed to get to where she was all week this week. And so we've seen how we've stepped through Thurgood Marshall from Brown to, to 
uh, Constance Baker Motley trying to help James Meredith to the first black woman on the Court of Appeals in 1975. We're stepping. We're still getting there. We're almost there. And then finally we get to this week. And Judge Gatanji Brown Jackson is on the bench in, in, the, in the Senate Judiciary Hearing Room. I'm sitting there listening to the attacks on her. First, the critical race theory boogeyman. What is that? It's a catch-all for, we just don't want people to know what happened to black folks. That's all that that is. That's all that that is. And then they started attacking her about her sentencing in child pornography cases. I could barely sit there. I thought I was going to get arrested. Because every time they said, I, uh, I started to jump up. But I was sitting on the aisle right next to one of the Capitol Police, the wonderful Capitol Police. And it was this big black guy who was there. And I, I'm telling you, I was this close to him, Ron. I was about this far from him. And every time I said, uh, he was grunting too. Uh. <laughs> I was like, uh. he said, uh. so we, we had this knowing thing we were doing back and forth with each other. He grunt, I grunt. He grunt, I grunt. We kept looking at each other like, oh my God, what's going on here? But we knew, we knew what was going on. Because the way she sentenced in those child pornography cases is exactly the way that I would have sentenced in most of those cases. They're very nuanced. The guidelines don't really work. They're old fashioned for what we do now with computers and all of that. There's so many factors you have to take into consideration, aggravating factors and mitigating factors and age and all kinds of stuff. For them to just say, oh, you should have just given them 50 years, that's just ridiculous. That's what Graham said, just give everybody 50 years. Dumb to dumb dumb. That just didn't even make any sense. That means we're not judging. That's right. That means we are not judging. And our oath was to judge. And so in any event, and then finally, attacking her for the same thing that they attacked Constance Baker Motley for, representing people who deserve to be given a defense, uh, it's, I was like, deja vu, here we are all over again. Um, I sat there in that hearing room, remembering that I had been in that room myself 28 years ago for my Senate confirmation hearing before one of the same senators, Grassley, I was like, he's still here? <laughs> Y'all just don't never go get no way, do you? I was like, Grassley's still here? He was here when I had my hearing in 1994. Still here. Um, um, and then Thursday, the American Bar Association, one of my dear friends, Judge Ann Claire Williams, who was um, an African-American woman on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Seventh, did I say seventh? Seventh? Seventh, Ooh, I was messed up, thank you, baby. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago. Uh, she retired about two years ago now. Uh, she's head of the ABA committee uh, on the federal judiciary. So she testified on yes, on, was that yesterday? I'm getting the days of the week mixed up. Because my mind is, I don't, know how, I, I don't know how the congressman does this flying back and forth, running back to town, all that. So uh, she testified on yesterday on behalf of the American Bar Association. But here's my question to you, and this is a question that our former president, Lawrence Bose, raised. Why wasn't the National Bar Association also testifying? Why was only the American Bar Association testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee on the qualifications of a judge? That means there's some work to do, right? Right, right, Mr. President? It should not have just been the American Bar Association given that 
talk, although Ann did a great job. I was very proud of her. But why not the NBA? And it's still not too late for the NBA to weigh in. And I think that it needs to weigh in and send letters to the Senate Judiciary Committee for their consideration. They are going to vote on April the 4th, the committee, and then it goes to the full Senate, hopefully, on April the 10th, is what I'm understanding at this point in time. So there's still time. And I would say this, Heyman Sweat didn't get here with us, just like our president said, he did not get a chance to graduate from law school, he got sick, he had a lot of stress in his life as a result of dealing with law school and the lawsuit and everything else, so he didn't get there with us. But his start paved the way for where we are today, which is that we have the opportunity to let our voices be heard as we try. <laughs> I'm holding in my stomach, so hurry up and take your pictures. You don't see my shirt? As we try to get Judge Jackson confirmed. It is time for us to take up some space in the room and be heard. Y'all like my shirt? Isn't that cute? So let's not let Heman sweat down. Let's not let him down. Let's finish the fight and make this moment in history happen. Thank you all. Great job, great Thank job. You. Thank you. Wake up, everybody. No more sleeping in there. Something special about tonight. What is different, what is special? I, Barbara Jordan, am a keynote speaker. 1956, Texas Southern graduate Barbara Jordan kicked down barriers to become the first African-American woman elected to Congress from the Deep South. 1970, Texas Southern graduate Mickey Leland was elected to Congress and led the fight against poverty and hunger worldwide. They developed the skills to make history and change the world at Texas Southern University. TSU continues their legacy at the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs, offering degrees in administration of justice, public affairs and administration, urban planning and environmental policy, political science, and now an executive master's in public administration online. For more information, contact Dr. Michael O. Adams at 713-313-7760 or online at tsu.edu. Enter the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs as a student. Leave as a leader with the skills to change the world.